One in five Canadians experience chronic pain, which can affect all areas of a person's life. But did you know that low-income individuals and women are significantly more likely to experience chronic pain? Welcome to Mind the Health Gap, a podcast from Women's College Hospital Foundation that brings together experts across all disciplines of care to discuss the gender gaps that exist in our healthcare system, ranging from gaps in gender-specific research to information to care, which all have an impact on the health and lives of women. My name is Jennifer Bernard, and I will be your host today. On this episode, we'll be joined by Celeste Corkery and Dr. Tanya Durina to speak about chronic pain and pain management, specifically as experienced by women in our healthcare system. First, we will be joined by Celeste, who previously worked in the Toronto Academic Pain Medicine Institute at Women's College Hospital, otherwise known as TAPME. As a registered physiotherapist and now the manager of TAPME, Celeste is part of a multidisciplinary team that specializes in providing evidence-based care for chronic pain. She has played an integral part in developing the Pelvic Pain Clinic using a patient-centered approach, empowering patients to take ownership over their health. Celeste, thank you for being here with us today. We're going to cover a topic that actually touches so many people. We're talking about chronic pain. And I want you to first of all, start off by defining it, because I think that's actually one of the most confusing parts about talking about it is people don't know there are different kinds of pain. So let's start right at the beginning. Let's define what it is so that people understand what we're talking about here today and what it doesn't mean. So. The floor is yours. Great. Uh, thanks for having me today, Jennifer. It's really nice to to meet and to chat about pain. Uh, I think one of the first things that's important to understand is the definition of pain. And the International Association for the Study of Pain defines it as a sensory and emotional experience. Okay. And that pain can be related to um warning our bodies about uh, potential tissue damage or actual tissue damage. But I think one of the key words in there is potential tissue damage. Right. And I think the thing that you said that I, I believe a lot of people will be surprised about is that it's an emotional experience because I think most of us in the lay world think, well, if you feel pain, it's real, it's there. It's, it has nothing to do with your emotions. It's, it's physical. If, if you're feeling a sensation and it hurts, that sensation is real and it's where it hurts. So you're saying that's not necessarily the case. So explain the sensory, not the sensory piece so much, the emotional piece of pain. Yeah, I think anybody that's experienced loss in their lives or, or have, has gone through grief knows that emotional pain is a real pain as well. And that we do a really good job at separating our minds and our bodies, but really it's one entity. Our minds is a part of our body and they really, they function together. Right. And so one of the things that I've heard is that the mind has a full map of the body. And even if you disconnect those parts, the mind is still attached. And that's where we hear about things like phantom pain, where you have maybe had a limb amputated or lost, but you're still feeling it. Is that connection is never lost, even with the physical disconnection. 
Yeah, that's a really great example. So we we do have a little body map in our brains. And so every parts of our bodies are represented in our brain. And our brains change often slower than our bodies do. So phantom limb pain is a perfect example of perhaps we've had an amputation or a limb is now gone, but that body map in the brain is still the same as it was. It takes time for that map to change. So people can experience pain as though they still have that foot or they still have that arm, even though it's gone. Because pain is not a simple experience. It really is layered and and has a lot of factors that play into it. Right. So a lot of times people think that there's a cure or a simple way of getting rid of pain, whether it's surgery, whether it's a medication or a procedure. Can you talk about it? And I've heard you use this analogy of it being like a fire alarm that you can't seem to shut off. I think that gives people a really clear mental picture of what pain is really about. Yeah, I'd love to speak to that. So I think the first thing that's important to understand is that there is a difference between acute pain and acute pain occurs in the first three months. But once we've experienced pain beyond three months, often there are changes that happen in our nervous system. And so pain is like our body's internal alarm. It's telling us, pay attention, something's going on. You need to change something because it could be dangerous. And so in those first three months, that fire alarm is really useful, right? It's telling you, look for the fire so you can put it out. Right. But what happens after three months is oftentimes the fire alarm itself starts to change and it's the alarm that starts to malfunction so that the alarm is still going off, even though the fire might be gone. Right. And we're continuing to see different healthcare providers asking them to look for the fire, help me with the fire. And we're not always paying attention to maybe we need to look at the alarm. Right. And that's the psychosocial part. That's the the emotional part and the wraparound care that you need to do to deal with pain. I'd love to jump in there as well, because it's not quite uh, so simple because the psychosocial will be a part of it. But There are biological changes that occur when we've had pain. So it's still really trying to use a biopsychosocial approach. We're addressing the biomedical and the psychological and the social. So let's talk a little bit about how the chronic pain is addressed in our healthcare system, or maybe we could say not addressed in our healthcare system. So one of the stats I read is that direct costs in 2019, which is a while ago now, 38 to $40 billion in procedures that don't work or bouncing between specialists. So this idea that you can go to one person and they can cure your pain, obviously that's not working. Let's talk about some of the things that are not working in chronic pain and perhaps some of the things we're doing here at Women's College Hospital to address that. I would love to. So I think one of the things to keep in mind is that chronic pain is a relatively new specialty. So it's in the process of developing standardized pathways and standardized care, and that's going to make a big difference. But because it's new, people do bounce around and they hear really conflicting messages. And that's really scary, right? When one physician or physiotherapist or someone else, everyone's giving you different information, it's really hard to know what to do. And oftentimes people come in thinking there is a solution and they're looking for that fire still and trying to find one thing that will put out the fire. 
And we're not really approaching it in a very holistic way. We want to look at people as entire people. Right. Right. Thinking about their whole lives, their nutrition, their sleep, their social supports, their, you know, talking about what lived experience have they had? Are we addressing any trauma a person might have experienced in their childhood? And also looking at the biomedical. There are there medications that can help? Are there other things that could be used as well? Okay. So let's talk a little bit about some of those intersectionalities that people have to look at. So one of the things we want to touch on is that chronic pain generally is perceived to have a higher prevalence in women versus men. And that can be challenging because often, you know, the theme we've heard here is that women are often not listened to when they come into in contact with health practitioners around pain or worse, they're just sort of expected to live with it. Oh, you have pelvic pain. You know, that's part of being a woman. And somehow that pain and be is part of being a woman. Can you talk a little bit about some of the gender issues around pain? Yeah, I think pelvic pain is a really great example. It's a it's an underserviced part of our healthcare. It's an area that has a lot of opportunity for growth. And I think it starts at an education level, you know, at a population education level that traditionally people assigned female at birth are told that pain is just part of the experience and that it's normal, but we don't really have a great definition of what normal means and when we should be looking into things a little bit further. And I think it really comes back to that holistic approach that when a person is experiencing any sort of chronic pain, especially pelvic pain, we really need to look at their whole lives and see what's going on and what's contributing to that pain. I think a really important thing to distinguish is understanding that chronic pain is a chronic disease and trying to find a a space of acceptance, but not resignation and giving up. Right. And that acceptance that this is something I might have to live with, but that doesn't mean there aren't other things that I can do to help my life and and help myself live a full life. And that's where our approach of self-management comes into play. And it's really trying to help people learn the skills so they can live a fuller and better life. Right. And so one of the things that I learned that we do here at Women's, we have, you know, Pain U, which is our pain university. And when you have all these alarm bells going off and you've tried medication and maybe some of it's working and you've tried surgery and you, maybe some of that has helped, what is the next piece that you have to really work on in order to, you know, calm those alarm bells? so that you can not give up, but you can, you know, be an active part of your health. Yeah. So that's something that looks a bit different for each person that comes through, right? So something like Pain You is a wonderful example where we cover a variety of topics and skills. And actually, all of them are on our website for free for anyone that wants to look at them. There's modules and and some readings and videos. Oh, that's wonderful. So you hear that out there. You can just log on to the Women's College Hospital website and and, and look for Pain U. Is that what you're looking for? So the website is tapmepain.ca, T-A-P-M-I, pain.ca. And under the patient tab, you can find a self-management group that's called Pain U. And I think the idea of what we're really trying to do is teach people a variety of skills, but also letting them know that it's going to be completely overwhelming to take on all of these skills at once. So you really want to approach it with a 
maybe even dipping your toe kind of process where I'm going to read about different skills and then see what really stands out to me, what makes the most sense for me. And it could be that maybe a, a meditation practice makes sense for me. Maybe it's breathing. Right. Maybe for me, sleep is really the big thing. So then working on sleep hygiene would be the number one thing. Right. So, you know, it's not a prescription that one size fits all in pain. It sounds very unique and almost, you know, bespoke for each person's situation, where they are meeting them, where they are in their lives, making sure that you take into account all those intersectionalities. So let's loop back to things like self-management. I really love this idea that you can take a bit of control. So you've talked a little bit about, you know, diet. You've talked a little bit about sleep. Let's talk about what a lot of people don't want to talk about is like how they eat and how even things like constipation play a huge role in pain and how the discomforts that we feel in things like endometriosis, you know, we really have to know our bodies. We have to understand our bodies. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe how our hormones play into pain? So I think one of the really simple ways of thinking about it is that if pain is an alarm that's telling my body that I could be facing something threatening, it's very closely linked to my nervous system and my fight or flight response. Okay. And so when I'm in fight or flight, my body thinks it's being attacked, right? Okay. So I'm going to clench through my big muscles. My breath is going to go up into my chest and I'm ready to fight or run away. And are people in pain sort of stuck in that fight or flight response most of the time? Is that what you find? Yeah. So a lot of the time people are, because pain is closely linked to that perception of threat, our bodies respond to pain by going into that fight or flight response. Right. If you're in a bad accident like this young woman was, you could just be like that all the time. Yeah. And it ties into as well, the experiences that we've had, right? If I've experienced something very traumatic, then my brain and my body have learned that the world is a dangerous place. So I need to be prepared. Right. And I need to be in that fight or flight mode in case I need to run away or in case I need to fight. We're really not designed to be in fight or flight all the time. Right. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. The balance to that is our rest and digest. And if you think about it, if I'm in fight or flight, my blood flow, my nervous attention, it's going to my big muscle groups, right? Okay. I'm clenching, I'm prepared. It's not going to my gut. Right. So my gut is going to slow down and I might experience something like diarrhea or constipation. And that really ties into everything. Also, it's not really linear. It's a bit circular. But one simple piece that we can think of is if I'm breathing into my chest, right, I'm not breathing into my belly, my diaphragm, so my big muscle at the base of my chest that helps me breathe, it's clenched. And if it's clenched, that's going to have an impact on how my stool moves through my intestines. Because with every deep breath that I take, that diaphragm is pistoning. And it's creating a bit of like a massaging of my gut to help me go to the bathroom. Okay, so it's ironic that it's all tied together. Like this is a trigger from pain. Yeah, and it sort of it becomes a bit of a cycle because by being in that fight or flight, then we can sometimes perpetuate some of that pain. I see. So talk about why it's important that you don't see just like one type of specialist and what we call an interdisciplinary approach. Yeah. So it is really important to have an interdisciplinary or a multidisciplinary approach because we really think of that pain as being so layered. Right. That social factors, the psychological factors, the physical factors, everything is part of the puzzle. 
And traditionally, we've really put a lot of emphasis on medication and, and medical interventions. But really, that's only one piece of the puzzle. So one of the advantages to being in a multidisciplinary clinic is that you can have those lenses. In our team, it's really through the self-management learning and through those groups that you, you have exposure to other, other disciplines. Right. And, you know, I would think that, you know, you're talking a lot about self-learning, that taking control. And I've heard this from people with pain. They actually, you know, whether the pain was decreased or not, they felt better when they were in more control, when they had more information, because it's something, as we said at the top, that has no cure. So having some sort of control is so important when that fire alarm is going off. You know that you have coping mechanisms. Is that the kind of things that you learn when you're part of the the pain university and what you need to learn if you have chronic pain is how to take control? Yeah, take some of that power back. So you can imagine how frustrating and scary it is to wait on a list to see a physician. You could be waiting a long time and then you finally see the doctor and they tell you, listen, there isn't really something medical that we can do that will change your pain. And we have to learn to accept and live with this pain. And so that can be a devastating experience, right? Especially right. if you've been waiting for a couple of years thinking you're going to see the physician and they're going to have an answer for you. So anything that we can do, even while we're waiting to take some of that power back to start, you know, trying to design our lives so that we can still live a fulfilling and full life. All right. So thank you so much uh, for this conversation on pain. I learned so much. I'm sure everybody did. As we wrap up here, any final last words to reassure people? Because I think that what a lot of people need in this space. So what would you say to people who need a little bit of reassurance? I think the big, like the most important thing is to understand that it's pain is a real experience. Pain is a subjective experience. And it is what you say it is right? Nobody else is in your body. Nobody else is experiencing what you're experiencing. And that it, it really, it takes a team of people to help and support. And that a lot of people go through this system feeling quite invalidated. And it, it can be really, really scary to experience debilitating pain. And then you, you get an image, you get a test and it comes back normal. Sometimes we hear the message that this is great news. Everything is normal. But that feels so scary when, but it doesn't feel normal, right? It hurts. I'm, I can't get out of bed in the morning and, and because of the pain and you're telling me that we can't find anything. So I want to provide some reassurance around that. That's not an uncommon experience and it is hard. And that self-management, we say it like it's easy, but it's not. Changing our lives and changing our behaviors and changing you know, our day-to-day -day is one of the hardest things anyone has to do. Right. So I really want to validate that it's a difficult experience. Thank you, Celeste. Wonderful having you here. Thank you for having me. Now, I'm so happy to welcome Dr. Tanya Durena. Dr. Rena is the medical director of TAPME at Women's College Hospital. Her research has been featured in publications such as the Journal of Interprofessional Care and the Journal of Urology, and she has spent her career studying chronic pain management to improve patient outcomes and quality of life. Hello, Dr. Dorena. I am so thrilled that we are having this conversation because we're talking about chronic pain. And I think it's a subject that so many people can relate to, so many people suffer from, and very few of us really understand it. 
That's a great question, Jennifer. I'm really happy to be here and honored to be on this podcast. I have a patient. She was complaining of having significant period pains. So I call them period pains. Well, we shouldn't because she was having dysmenorrhea. So pain surrounding her period since she started her period at 14. And um, this went on for a significant amount of time. And her family physician told her she had women's problems. So I give a talk about endometriosis and I call it women's problems. And she felt like it was normal for her to be feeling pain around her period because that's what her doctor told her. Lo and behold, I meet her when she's 24 years old. And the reason I met her is because she had a chest tube in. She had a collapsed lung because she had such significant and severe diaphragmatic endometriosis. So that's when the endometrial tissue inside your uterus kind of grows everywhere else. She had stage four endometriosis with uh, significant endometrial deposits all throughout her body. And this was significantly affecting her. Oh, my. And endometriosis is one of those things that if you know the right questions to ask, pay attention to it early, you know, you can manage it by making the patient amenorrheic, which means, uh, you know, trying to stop women's periods or people who were assigned female at birth stopping the periods so that you don't have that endometriosis secreting those inflammatory mediators and causing pain. So talk to me about the emotional, you know, sort of trauma that women go through when their pain is ignored. I mean, I can't imagine this young woman for it sounds like almost a decade asking for help and then it's sort of being dismissed as as you so beautifully put it, which is the catch all for it seems all pain for women, women problems, which is, you know, almost disrespectful. Talk about what happens, what you see in terms of people's emotional state when their pain is ignored or disputed or completely dismissed. And then they find out that they have a diagnosis that could have changed the course of their treatment. Well, there's a couple of effects of that. So when you're not taken seriously, you kind of stop trusting your own body or your own sense of self. And things that we like to measure for success when you have a chronic pain issue is self-management, is is self-efficacy and the lack of catastrophizing. And so self-efficacy is the belief that you can manage a chronic condition yourself. So for chronic pain, it's that belief that, hey, if I give you a routine, an exercise routine and some cognitive behavioral therapy and maybe some medications like a management protocol, you can go home and actively manage your own care. And catastrophizing is kind of magnifying, feeling helpless, and ruminating about a pain condition. And these are very specific things we look at on how someone's going to succeed. And when we don't, when we dismiss people's pain, we actually make them more catastrophic because now they're going to magnify it more if you dismiss it. It's not just going to go away. They're perceiving pain. Their body's telling them, hey, something's threatening you. There might be actual or potential tissue damage here. So pay attention. Right. And so naturally, if you ignore that as a, as a healthcare provider, you're actually going to make the patient catastrophize more and then not feel like they have any self-efficacy, not feel like they can manage this themselves in a way that you're giving them confidence to do so. What you're telling them is you're actually denying them that they have a symptom. We don't do that for any other healthcare condition. Right. We don't in cardiology, we don't tell people you're not having cardiac palpitations or in psychiatry we don't say you're not having a depression or having an anxiety disorder or panic. Like we don't tell people they're not having that, but for some reason with pain, we feel like it's okay to dismiss somebody, even though they're blatantly telling us a symptom. And whether that symptom is something acute or a chronic disease, it should still be paid attention to. 
Well, I want to switch gears a little bit. I think it's still connected. I want to talk about the impact of trauma on pain because, you know, again, I don't think it's a a universal leap people make in their minds that somehow trauma can make pain more acute. I'd love you to talk a little bit about that in terms of what its impact is on people being treated and diagnosed. So it's a really important factor, and I'm really glad you brought that up. There's something called adverse childhood events. And these are things, there's kind of 13 domains, and they include emotional, sexual, and physical abuse, parental neglect, you know, parent having significant uh, substance use uh, disorder or imprisonment. And if you kind of tick off the boxes and you've had multiple of these as a child, you will and are more likely to develop chronic disorders, chronic mental health issues, and chronic systemic issues. So we know that having childhood experiences that are very negative will lead to adult chronic issues. And so we can't ignore that. And so that's why things like our Women's College Hospital Trauma Therapy programs are so important because they help patients recognize that, hey, maybe the behaviors or your chronic conditions are a result of these events that you've had as a child, and they could be an explanation. They also could be significant factors in how people perceive pain. Pain is a warning sign. It's a threat that, hey, something bad is happening to you. And so some of us are more threatened than others, either by the color of our skin or by our gender identity. So some people suffer a lot more trauma. And then you start seeing them later stages in life as having a lot more chronic disease. And remember, chronic pain is one of those chronic diseases. I want to talk now about the gap in knowledge around surrounding chronic pain, both within the profession and sort of in the public. Um, So let's talk a little bit about, you know, where the gaps are in the system and how the system addresses, you know, the thousands and thousands of people that are trying to get help every day for chronic pain. Talk a little bit about that and then perhaps a little bit about how women's is trying to address those issues. Yeah, so that's great. So the gap in education is very visible in medical school. So in the medical school system, veterinarian students get five weeks of chronic pain education. And we, in 2010, got one week in medical school. And this exists across the health disciplines as shocking numbers. We've now at University of Toronto increased that to two. We have a great program called Pain Week. It's run by the University of Toronto Center for the Study of Pain. And it's really interdisciplinary. We get all the dental students, nursing, pharmacy, OT, PT, social work, physicians getting together as students and talking about chronic pain cases. So we're all providing interdisciplinary care. So education at the level of health disciplines is number one. Number two, educating the public. So there was really great campaigns about mental health. And that's when everyone started normalizing or, you know, it being okay with us having mental health, we don't have the same for chronic pain. Right. I have to tell you, Jennifer, the World Health Organization revamped the International Classification of Disease book. So we have something called ICD-11, and it gives you all the codes for a diagnosis that you make. And it just this year in 2022 uh, included chronic pain as a new disease. And they revamped it for the first time. They revamped it because of COVID uh, to include uh, COVID as, you know, a disease. And now we have chronic pain, which existed for since the beginning of time. 
So two shocking things in that statement. Yeah. So but it's exciting. It's hopeful. It's very hopeful. One is that we were getting less less training for our physicians on chronic pain than people were getting for, you know, treating animals, which is shocking. Glad to hear that you've taken the big leap to at least be equal. And I think that, you know, we've talked a lot about medical school and training and sensitivity. And I think because there are so many social factors involved in chronic pain, as well as cultural sensitivities, as well as race and ethnicity, all those things are are tied into treating chronic pain. Because as you said, it's an emotional and social, it has so many social factors. Do you feel like, you know, the distance you've come in terms of embedding it in two weeks, are there more things that you would love to see added on to that now that this progress has been made and the World Health Organization is actually recognizing pain, which I'm sure millions, possibly billions of people uh, are affected by? I think tying it into women's health, you know, having a real focus on women's health strategies is important. And it's something we don't do, tying chronic pain into things like uh, gynecology right. and uh, urology and gastroenterology and general surgery, tying us together so that we can start working together more. Sometimes you find it's, you know, it affects pain in the pelvis, affects so many organs, but we're all working so siloed. You know, the gynecologists and the urologists work very separately, even though the structures are neighboring and share common nerve pathways. And it affects the patient as a whole in terms of, you know, sexual, sexual activity. So this is important for our entire race. So studying women's health conditions, this is important for the race as a whole. So talk to me about what kind of research is being done on chronic pain that includes women. Do you feel like that, it, you know, we've sort of turned a corner and now people are paying attention? Because I think what you said off the top is still so true. We sort of uh, silo a lot of women's pain, especially if it's around the pelvis, especially if it's around the time of menstruation, as women's problems. And I'm, I'm just wondering, how can we change that language and really start talking about it, you know, in a more honestly thoughtful and respectful way? Because they aren't women problems. They're people problems who happen to be women. And so what do you think about the state of research in this area? And are you seeing that progress as well? For sure. We have our own research scientist in our program named Rachel Bosma. She works closely in our pelvic pain clinic. We do a lot of work about pain management strategies while patients already have pain. At the level of the Canadian Pain Society, there is a lot of research coming out, in fact, in the last five to 10 years, about differences in sex on perception of pain, as well as the influence of hormones. So we're starting to learn that things like testosterone are anti-nociceptive. So they increase your pain threshold. And balances of hormones like progesterone and estrogen are pro-nociceptive. And as a female, I kind of know this because there are certain phases of your menstrual cycle, like the luteal phase, when you have slightly higher estrogen than progesterone, where you can perceive more pain. And so things are more irritating to us. We have more low back pain. We're more bothered by pre-existing pain conditions. So we know hormones now may play a part in this. So it's not just a woman thing. It's a hormone thing as well. And so really important and important uh, studies are, are now being done in trans communities, too, where we're, we're now using hormones for our transgender populations. Well, this is very promising. And it's a theme that we've heard over and over the, the impact of hormones particularly estrogen, 
on so many uh, areas and how we must have a sex and gender lens on everything if we're really going to find the answers to the questions that we have about women's health and everyone's health. Because if we learn about women's health, we also learn about everyone else. That's what we've heard so many times. So I want to dig into the program that you lead here at Women's College Hospital, Tap Me, mentioned it off the top. I'll set it up by saying what I learned in my time here is how complex pain is. And, you know, a lot of people say to me, you're an anesthesiologist. I'm, I should be able to just get a shot, uh, you know, a blocker or something and all the pain should go away. And I want you to talk about all the things we do here at Women's through Tap Me because that's not true. That's not the way it actually works. So perhaps you could walk us through the program and why it's been structured that way, because that that one shot or that one surgery doesn't always work. Perfect. So we have ministry funding uh, to hire health disciplines and health disciplines that we have are a physiotherapist, a psychologist, social workers, occupational therapists and nurses. But all of these people are essential to getting people uh, to manage their pain better. And like you mentioned, Jennifer, there's no cure. It's a chronic disease. There's no shot that's going to cure you and make it go away. This is something you have to use a management approach and have a plan and have learned some skills to manage it. It's like diabetes. There's no cure for diabetes and it's a chronic disease. You have to learn how to manage it. If you go to your family doc every week or a couple of weeks for a single insulin injection of rapid acting insulin, it's not going to make your diabetes go away. It's not going to cure your diabetes. And you need to have some element of self-efficacy, which I mentioned before. So self-management skills are really important. And what happens at TAPME is you come into the program through a central triage, and I'll tell you the benefits of central triage a bit later. But you come in through the program through a central triage portal. And what we do is uh, we set you up with something called pain education so that you can learn about your condition. And then you have access to a program that's called Pain University. And it's a real skills program where you learn about cognitive behavioral therapy, exercise, sleep, diet, everything you need to know to manage your condition, manage your flare ups, manage your life, because there are going to be some changes that you're going to have to do. And, and that's okay. Uh, we need to teach you how to love your stove. So when I talk about chronic pain, I always say, you know, maybe there was a fire on your stove and your fire alarm bell went off. And that was a good thing. At that time, when you had an acute condition, it was a good thing. It taught you to call the authorities and get rid of that fire on your stove. But now you have a broken fire alarm bell that's making you think you have a fire on your stove all the time. And the biggest issue is that you probably won't, you know, you might have a couple of fires here and there in life. But you have a broken fire alarm bell that's preventing you from cooking. And we got to teach you how to cook and love your stove because your family's going hungry. And that's important, too. So everything is about learning to love yourself and manage your chronic condition in an effective manner. And doing single shot blocks and things like that is not going to be helpful. Diabetics have to learn how to eat well and exercise and manage their condition in an appropriate way so they don't deteriorate. And the same goes for chronic pain. This is so helpful. I love the analogy to diabetes. Nobody expects their diabetes to go away with a shot. We know it's a chronic disease. So many diseases are like this. And I think that that's going to give people a great mental picture of what they're going through. But there must be a reckoning that people have to sort of come to terms with when you realize like, I'm going to have to take control of the pain or kind of it's going to take control of me. And I heard the account of a young woman who had come here 
from Scotland to study, and she was in a horrific car accident. A, uh, a young unlicensed driver hit her crossing the street. And at the young age of 22, she found herself luckily not paralyzed by the incident, but left in chronic pain. And I'm sure this happens, you know, at different points in people's lives and it can happen at any point. But at 22, I remember her saying the depression of knowing that she was going to have to live with this pain forever was one of the most daunting things. And it wasn't until exactly what you said, she accepted the pain and took the power back and educated herself and empowered herself. And there were still lots of bad days, but she knew that she had power. So can you just hone in on what people need to do to sort of, or what you've seen some of your patients do to turn that corner and what happens when they do? It's one of those clinics uh, where you go into and it's, you have patients who really don't believe or don't want to have this problem. Uh, but it's, you know, rare that you'll go to a cardiology clinic and people will contest that they have AFib, right? Right. You know, chronic pain is, for the most part, pretty invisible. And that's what people can't come to terms with. Like when you have a chronic pain condition, especially pelvic pain, things like pelvic pain, people don't give you their bus seat, right? Right. Uh, you don't talk about these things with the grocery store clerk. Right. These are all things that people have uh, issues coming to terms with. And so we have a program actually called Acceptance and Commitment Therapy to address that. We have a group-based program within our chronic pain program to help people kind of move and be ready for change. It's called readiness for change. You can, it's a, something you can measure. And we really try to get people into that to make that paradigm shift, just like the patient that you mentioned. And there's ways to do it, uh, motivational interviewing. You have to be a really skilled clinician to try to get patients to move beyond this. You have to make the patients understand it's not personal. You know, it's not you or it's not in your head. You're not making this up. We believe you. And I think that's the, the important part, Have making patients feel really safe. Like, we believe you. We know this is happening. Uh, we sympathize. At the end of the day, we can't make it go away. So we have to teach you how to live despite this. And that's the hope. You have to give patients that hope. We strive to do that, to give people their lives back and make them realize that, you know, despite this, they could still cook. Uh, yeah, I have use all these the cooking analogies. <laughs> yeah, use the stove. Uh, I'm Italian and I don't cook, so I always feel really guilty. So I have these cooking analogies and stove analogies. But yeah, we, we try to teach people to use their stove and get their, their families uh, eating again so that we can live, right? That's what we're here to do. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Dorena. I can tell you that you have touched a nerve, to, <laughs> not to use a pun, for many people. I love the way we've talked about self-empowerment and education. I love the way we've talked about acceptance without being resigned to live without hope. And I thought I love the way you've sort of said, like the system has some catching up to do on education and bringing together all the people are needed to tackle this. The fact that, you know, women's is leading in this area is so hopeful because women, as you say, you know, disproportionately are not heard uh, when they talk about pain. And we're normalizing it and getting rid of that stigma. So thank you so much for shining a light on this important subject. I hope our listeners now feel that there is a place that will see and hear them. And there is hope for living with chronic pain. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Mind the Health Gap. If you'd like to learn more, please check out the other episodes of Mind the Health Gap wherever you get your podcasts. 
Visit us at womenscollegehospitalfoundation.com and stay up to date with us on our social media platforms.